The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Purpose of these talks and discussions that we have, uh, it's just to help uh, illuminate our life as a sensitive creature. We have this mind and body, and uh, we have a set of tendencies. So, as I've been talking about the last several weeks, in any moment, the natural, unavoidable sensitivity that we have with our present moment situation meets our dispositions, the habits of mind, the ways that we relate and the ways that we have a tendency to react. That always is meeting moment by moment whatever's arising for us, what we're seeing, what we're thinking, what we're hearing. So we've been talking about morality or this practice of non-harming and really bringing the attention right to this place. Like how do we relate, how do we understand that moment-to-moment -moment experience where it's like a sort of the ultimate act of creation in each moment where, you know, each moment is new for us. I mean, it doesn't seem like it, like you're here and you go, well, I've been to Common Ground before, or at least some of you. And it's, there's always a sense of, well, we know this, but that's really something we put over on top of the present moment. The specifics, you know, the actual moment that's arising here is completely new. And then the particular mixing of this moment's experience with, you know, all of the conditioning, that's also new. And what takes birth in that moment are all these different intentions, like how I'm going to understand or what I'm going to say or what I'm going to think or do in this moment. This is really the rebirth. <laughs> And, you know, in Buddhist uh, understanding, lifetime to lifetime is not so different than moment to moment. People make a big deal of, you know, well, when the body dies, what happens? But from a Buddhist perspective, the question is, well, what happens moment by moment? Because in a way, each moment dies and another moment takes birth. And this birthing process is something that we can observe. We can actually observe the moment taking birth, the intentions arising in the mind, the understanding, the interpretation of this moment that's arising moment by moment in the mind. So the last few weeks I've been talking about right speech. So like if we're going to undertake the training not to harm other beings, not to harm ourselves or other beings, then the way we do that is we bring our attention to this moment. And instead of just, in a sense, speaking out of our habits, we pay attention to the impulse to speak or the impulse to not speak. Last week I talked about truthfulness, like about the commitment to truth or how we relate to truth, truth speaking, truthful speaking. And, uh, you know, there's so many ways that 
we get in the habit, have the impulse to manipulate, massage the truth in different ways, even in, with seemingly good intentions, like a story that I told this morning in the talk about Sharon Salzberger. I think it's in her book, Loving Kindness. She talks about a time in her early years of practice. She was living with a number of other practitioners, and they were going to, a lot of them were going to India to practice for a few months, coming back, others would go. And, and one person, one of their friends living together in this house, uh, decided to go practice in India, but he told everybody in the house, don't tell my parents where I am because they're going to get really worried if they know I'm in India. This is in the early 70s. And so they said, okay. And anyway, he, he or she went off to India to practice and of course the parents call. And he said, well, he's not here right now. Things are fine. <laughs> and uh, somehow the parents didn't feel quite right, what they said, even though they said the, what they were supposed to say. You know how it is when we lie, especially if we've been training to be sensitive and training to be truthful, it's not easy to lie. Even if we have a so-called good reason to lie, it's not so easy. So maybe the parents picked up in their voice, the tone of their voice or something. And so they asked more questions. And of course that forced the people, the, their roommates, to lie even more explicitly. You know how that goes. And of course they did that even less well. <laughs> and made the parents even more paranoid. So eventually the people in the house realized that it wasn't appropriate to keep lying, so they tried to tell the truth to the parents, but at that point the parents didn't believe them at all. <laughs> and were really freaking out. <laughs> so it just, you know, it just shows that it's easy to rationalize uh, misspeaking or, or not telling the truth or leaving out some of the truth. And you know, the basic paradigm, as I talked about last week in our practice, is about coming into alignment with the truth, the way things are. I'm not talking about truth in some ultimate sense. I'm, I'm talking about truth in a really nitty-gritty sense, like the way it is, the way the body is, the way the mind is, the way the mind is spinning things. You know, like really seeing the truth of our wanting experience to be this way, wanting to see things this way, wanting our opinions to be upheld. Really seeing things, coming into alignment with truth and seeing the deep healing, the kind of psychological existential healing that happens when we come into this alignment with truthfulness. Isn't that the word that Stephen Colbert uses, truthfulness? Truthiness. Truthiness, thanks. The truthfulness sounded a little too conventional. Truthiness. But maybe truthfulness is better because it's the real, right? It's we, we get that, like this commitment, like I want to know the truth. I don't want to know what feels good. I don't want you to just, I don't want my life or my own way of seeing to mirror back what I expect. I, I want to know what's, how it is because if we don't know how it is, we don't know how to relate. If we're relating based on the way we want it to be, things really get off. But if we start to relate based on how it actually is, there's, a, there's an integrity and a easefulness. Even if it's not the way we want it to be, there's something healing about being in alignment. So this commitment to telling the truth, speaking the truth, really 
is more than just speaking the truth. It's really a manifestation of this deeper understanding that it's healing to be in alignment with the truth of things. And it's deeply disturbing and the cause for suffering to begin to justify uh, lies or mistruths. Like I mentioned last week, I read from a discourse of the Buddha to his son Rahula, who was a monk, a novice monk, and talked about how if anybody can justify speaking a lie, intentional lie, they can justify any uh, unskillful action. So I talked last week about uh, truth. I want to go on to some of the others, but I'll just end by saying that uh, um, well, I'll, I'll go on to the other uh, three. So the Buddha talked about four ways to train with right speech. Working on truth, working on refraining from slander, using words to destroy or to break apart a relationship or a community, uh, using words, avoiding using words where we're, in a sense, indulging in the power and the emotional charge of words. I'll talk more about that. It's usually translated as harshness, refraining from harshness of speech. And the last one is refraining from idle speech and gossip, useless speech, you could say. So I want to talk about these three other ways and how to train in this way as a manifestation of our commitment not to harm and also as a, a kind of a deeper commitment intention to be in alignment with things. And non-harming is really, it's really both a, a way to stabilize our life, like when we live in a harmonious way, things just start to work better for us. We have less tension in our mind. When we go to bed at night, if we've had a harmonious day, we sleep well. If we've had a disharmonious day, if we've had a lot of backfighting and gossiping and hateful speech and lying and cheating, stealing, well, we probably won't sleep so well. And, and so this is true not just in gross you know, extremes, but even just subtle, just subtle uh, acting out creates subtle tension. Gross acting out creates gross tension. So for somebody that's interested in the developing meditation practice, and we know how valuable ease and calm and stability is, what the Buddha calls the bliss of blamelessness. Because when the mind-heart is stable because of that bliss of blamelessness or living in harmony, well, it's just so much easier to see things as they are and to live in alignment with things as they are so much easy, I mean, it's so much easier to recognize like what's off in our relationship, which just sort of stands out. But when our mind's disturbed, we're not likely to be able to see or intuit what's off in our relationship. And so we'll try to correct it, but it, our act of trying to correct or fix what's off is going to miss the point, and we tend to make things even worse. You know, we tend to blame them, for example, because we miss seeing that, oh, I was expecting this. It didn't happen. I got angry. But it's not them. It's this expectation that was the cause of the problem. So anyway, let's move on to slander. 
and just reflect on how this may be true in our own life. Maybe not in obvious ways where where we're like trying to destroy somebody. Like in you know political debates, probably both sides of the aisle, you know, it's kind of a blood sport. It's like instead of arguing, discussing issues, political, economic, social issues on the level of what we might call facts or, you know, different scenarios, different possibilities, what might happen if we do this, what might happen if we do that, pros and cons, you know, cost benefits, risks. It's really like, well, this is my view, and uh, if in order to have this happen, I have to destroy the competition. You know, I have to literally destroy the other views. And it doesn't really matter how I destroy the other views. I'll basically do whatever I have to to uh, get rid of the competition, the other ideas, the other politicians or whatever. You know, we see this happening all over the place. It's like somehow different perspectives can peacefully coexist. It's like we feel threatened if somebody has a different point of view. This polarized world we live in. So we'll see that, you know, creeping out, uh, creeping up in our minds. Now we probably, you know, the people who might be here, you know, probably not that often are we intentionally slandering a good friend or family member. But probably there, most of us at times at least are willing to slander, to intentionally try to put down or destroy another politician or, you know, in our conversations with our friends. Like we don't, doesn't seem, like we probably wouldn't beat up a politician or, you know, whomever you're criticizing. But we feel okay about, uh, at least in this other person's mind we're talking to, like destroying any sort of good thought they might have of this person. Like he's just a human being doing the best he can. You know, yeah, I may not agree with his opinion, but you know, then we kind of launch in with, you know, he's a terrible person, and this is why, and and we kind of set something in motion that has real consequences. It's basically spinning the real delusion from a Buddhist point of view. The real delusion that uh, is really this good and bad, living with good and bad, turning things into good and bad. Like you can't have good without evil. So in order to be good, in order to be on the right side, that means other people have to be on the bad side. There's no nuance. There's no sense that well, everyone's doing the best they can. Everybody has their own particular perspective that is the natural arising from their particular conditions, what they saw, what they experienced, the inputs that they've had, that's what's manifesting in their life. Now, I may disagree with them. It may be appropriate to try to stop, to sort of promote your own perspective. But to somehow throw somebody out of our heart and see them as an evil or somebody to destroy, somebody that's okay to destroy, is, uh, you know, is, is a cause for our own suffering and the suffering stress in the world.
just some passages from the Buddhas. One avoids slanderous speech and abstains from it. What one has heard here, he does not repeat there so as to cause dissension there. And what one has heard here, uh, there, he does or she does not repeat here so as to cause dissension here. Thus one unites those that are divided and those that are united one encourages. Concord gladdens one. One delights and rejoices in concord. And one, and it is concord that one spreads by one's words. So this is the, you know, in this training with slander, it's like really seeing and appreciating the value of community and uh, harmony in the community. And that in a community on all levels, the community like within your own mind, the community among your partner or your family, the community like your places you hang out, like Common Ground Meditation Community, this community we live in, Minneapolis or the Twin Cities, and the world community. It is valuing the integrity of the community, which is this kind of universal respect and that, again, it doesn't mean that we agree with people's ideas and it doesn't mean that we don't stop people from doing harmful action. But there's a, there's a basic presumption that everything belongs in the sense that everything that's arising, you know, in our, let's say, world community, everything that's arising belongs in the sense that it's not a mistake. It didn't arise, fall from outer space. It is simply the natural arising of causes and conditions. And so in this sense, hatred isn't useful. Hatred never is useful. Hatred is always destructive. It's never justifiable. That doesn't mean we won't have hatred. But when we see the hatred in our heart, we should see it for what it is, which is it's not skillful. It's not helping. It's not necessary. To do good doesn't require hatred. Like to to sort of um, stand up, if that's what the moment is asking of us, to stand up and uh, kind of prevent some damage or harm from happening, you can do that out of love and compassion. It doesn't have to be done out of hatred or fear. So that's slander. That's pretty obvious. And you can really see how we can work with this as a restraint or refraining but also to work at it as a positive ideal, like to really cultivate ways of promoting harmony, creating harmony, like you know, just getting people to talk and finding ways to make it okay to talk about differences, like to create space for people to have different opinions. You know, it's the great thing when a democracy works well. It's a great thing because we make this agreement that no matter how abhorrent the majority's point of view is, in the end, we let the majority have its way up until the point, you know? And then, like Thomas Jefferson said, at some point we could say, okay, this is not okay. You know, it's not okay for the majority to oppress the minority. I'm going to do something. But until that point where it's like the majority isn't uh, accepted, the majority idea isn't acceptable, we kind of allow for that ebb and flow. Sometimes we're in the majority, sometimes others. Sometimes some people have the power, sometimes we have the power. 
and we understand that this is, you know, this is what allows for people to actually have loving partnerships is this understanding that we don't always get our way. There's a great teaching, I think from uh, Chinul, this uh, Buddhist master who brought uh, Buddhism to Korea about a thousand years ago, about don't side with yourself. And this idea, it's not that you, you should uh, disagree or sort of think your opinion is lower than others, but this general idea that our opinion should go first, it should be held higher. But where does that actually come from? I mean, what is actually rational about that? There is absolutely no reason that our opinion should be held above another's, except that we're attached to our opinion. And there's another example of this in the suttas, in the discourses of the Buddha, where there was this big uh, dissension in the, or a split in the Sangha, in the monastic Sangha over something really seemingly trivial when you read about it. I mean, it's almost hysterical about this little disagreement about whether someone had violated one of the many rules for the monks. And anyway, so there were people on this side and people on this side, and the Buddha kept telling them, you know, work it out, let go, it's okay. And they wouldn't put it down. They just wanted to keep arguing. So he just left. The Buddha just left and went off into the forest to practice by himself for a while. And uh, eventually, kind of, I think to cheer himself up probably, uh, wandered to where Anuruddha, one of his uh, main disciples, was practicing. He was one of the senior monks, and so he had some junior monks practicing with him. And uh, he noticed how harmonious this relatively small community was. And he, he asked, well, how is it that you guys are able to live in such harmony? And Anuruddha, and the other monks talked about how they do that, you know, how they basically don't talk too much. <laughs> Except, and they have this, you know, these different hand, hand sing, signals to kind of let each other know, like, well, I'll do this and you do that, that kind of thing. And they talked about, well, the first person back, you know, gets the water to wash the feet for the ones that are coming later. And if there's food left over, you know, one shares with the people who don't have as much food. And, you know, they just talked about how they work as an organism you know, kind of synchronistic organism. That's what a community is. You know, the human community is an organism. Our families are organisms, just like we're an organism. It's just that we're not so used to seeing the body of our family. You know, we are very much fixated on our boundaries of our body, but we're not so aware of like the body of common ground community. I mean, it's an organism. When we come together, this is an organism. You know, and when you come together in your family, when you're in your family, even when you're not necessarily together, it's an organism. And then the other thing that they said, Anuruddha, as the sort of senior person in the community, you know, and in a monastic setting, no matter who's wiser or not, the senior person, just to avoid disputes, it's like pure seniority. How many years as a monastic you're, you get to decide? And it just makes it very clear. And so Anuruddha was the senior person, and he said to the Buddha, and then the other way we maintain harmony is, I have the thought, you know, why should, uh, you know, if I have an opinion and they have another opinion, why should I side, why should I see my opinion as more important than their opinion? Why not just do what they want to do? And that's what I do. I do what they want to do. And that leads to harmony. 
it kind of really points out like uh, we don't need to slander and we don't need to use a harsh voice. Harshness isn't like we're intentionally trying to destroy somebody. Harshness really refers here to uh, this is this is sort of my interpretation at least. It's like getting intoxicated by the emotional charge in our language. And I'll give you an example. When I was a kid, um, maybe four or five, I grew up in this house where the, my parents kept the living room sort of isolated from us. We were allowed to walk through it to get to the upstairs. But we had to walk on the plastic runner. Yeah. And all the furniture was covered. And I remember there was a funny story. It was so embarrassing. Something like junior year, a friend of mine who lived in Chicago, so I lived, grew up in North Minneapolis, he lived in Chicago, um, and he was passing through town, and uh, he just showed up. He was coming back from a camp up north, and just showed up, and uh, he walked in, and he goes, what, are you guys moving? <laughs> but anyway, my parents were very protective of the living room. We had seven kids, and so they were really wanted one room that was sort of maintained. And anyway, somehow a piece of furniture got scratched, and they were really upset. And I was there, and I think a couple of my siblings were there, and they were kind of really angry and doing what they normally do when they're angry. And I just felt like I should join in, so I just said, damn it, really loud, <laughs> which is not okay in my family. <laughs> they all kind of looked at me. But it was that, that kind of, that tendency in our mind to kind of light the charge of speech. It's like an empowerment to sort of use strong speech. Like you probably notice that when you swear, or if you swear. That sort of charge we get when we speak harshly or when, you know, we kind of say things we shouldn't say, like speaking naughtily. You know, it's like, you know, a lot of music has this sort of thing. I, I don't know much about rap music, but the little I hear, it's sort of one of the reasons it's so uh, intoxicating is because it has this charge, like saying things that shouldn't be said and using words we shouldn't be using and uh, speaking in a tone of voice that, you know, polite people don't use. And this is really harsh speech. It's so easy to cause damage, destruction this way, even with you even using it in a pretend way. You know, I notice I have this tendency to sort of, uh, I don't know if it's sarcasm, but just to kind of, you know, pretend I'm charged when I'm not really charged. But I like that feeling of kind of speaking loudly and uh, being provocative. And it's not, again, it's not so much that this is inherently immoral or unskillful that it lends itself to being unskillful because it's intoxicating. It's just like drinking alcohol <clears throat> or using drugs. There's nothing inherently immoral about having a glass of wine or a, a beer. But because of its intoxicating qualities, it's a lot easier to cause harm when the mind's intoxicated than when the mind's clear. And so when we indulge in this sort of uh, emotional language, let's say, it's just a lot easier to slip. You know, like you're being playful, and then all of a sudden you touch a raw nerve with the people you're talking with. I mean, you, I notice this a lot with my wife. You know, I'll just be kind of blabbering, playing around with, you know, it's a little bit like self-stimulation when we're talking in this way. 
and uh, and all of a sudden somebody's hurt. You know, we've kind of caused harm. Or I've worked in the schools a lot with kids, and there's this sort of banter, you know, and it can be very playful and and even sort of clever and fun and even loving at times, but it can very quickly turn over to being very hurtful. And then once somebody gets hurt, it just triggers the other person is right going right for the jugular. We're right into slander. So this is why harsh speech is held up as an area for training. And so the positive and so the negative side of this is to, you know, actively refrain, like to have a red flag that like when I'm when I'm uh, when my voice is charged, there's like a red flag. Okay, really pay attention, what's going on here? Because I'm in a danger zone. It's like I could really cause harm. But there's a positive way to train here too, which is to cultivate uh, an interest in a like an appreciation for gentleness, like gentle speech and silence, like really having, like really holding back, not always just feeling like we got to jump in, but just allowing for pregnant pauses, allowing for moments of silence when we're with people. And just developing a way to peacefully coexist with the silence. This is what's so great about retreats, where we learn how to hang out with a group of people when we go on a Buddhist retreat, usually they're what we, we use what's called noble silence, where we're not doing much talking, you know, except for particular places where it would be uh, awkward not to talk. But for the most part, there's no speech. And it's just so nice to learn that, well, you can be really intimate and really relaxed and feeling really held by the community, but without having to talk at all. I encourage people to do this in your home lives, you know, if you live with other people or just with your friends. In a way that's not awkward or weird, it's just build in times where it's okay not to actually be communicating with language, but just to hang out in each other's space. In a way, it's a sign of good friendship where you don't feel like you have to fill up the space with language. You know, where you can go out to eat with somebody or hang out with people, and it's just okay to not talk. There's a famous passage in the Tao Te Ching, this uh, Taoist text. Nothing in the world is as soft and yielding as water, yet for dissolving the hard and inflexible, nothing can surpass it. The soft overcomes the hard, the gentle overcomes the rigid. Everyone knows this is true, but few can put it into practice. Therefore, the master remains serene in the midst of sorrow. Evil cannot enter his heart. Because she has given up helping, she is people's greatest help. True words seem paradoxical. So the, especially that statement, the hardest thing is overcome by the softest. This can inspire us to use gentle speech and silence and to really develop the skill. I mean, it's not that we never want to raise our voice, but to really develop to the nth degree the power of silence and the power of gentle speech. Like, um, you know how it is, those people we know that have this quality, naturally maybe, just how powerful the words are that they speak, as opposed to someone who tends to talk a lot, a lot and to, who uses emotion quite freely, expressively, a kind of 
overdoes it maybe. You know, it's like uh, we can, it's a little bit like the boy who cries wolf. You know, we cannot uh, value so much or know whether what they're saying is actually in alignment with some objective truth. So we always sort of have to kind of put up a defense when we're around people like that, like, who knows? Who knows whether I should listen? You know, who knows whether this strong energy is attacking or not? Like, I get that sometimes for people to tell me after a meeting, you know, I felt like you were attacking me. And it, to me, it felt like I was just asking questions. That I have this sort of kind of, uh, uh, like, I'm comfortable putting a lot of power or charge in my words. And I realized that it's not always interpreted as being skillful and maybe, you know, kind of raises the question, well, what is? Maybe I'm a little intoxicated by the power of my words and kind of, in a way, uh, grooving on that, you know, as a way of building up a sense of self or maintaining a sense of self. So this is what we learn by reflecting on harshness. And this gets really, you'll see, like, if you really take on the training, of using gentle speech and more silence, not speaking as much, you'll notice like like you'll feel starved. The self will feel starved. Like I feel invisible. And you'll see that, oh, a lot of that speech, a lot of that talk was just about trying to feel real, trying to feel like a person. And we go, well, do I need to be that person? Maybe it's okay not to be that person. Maybe it's okay to be empty. You know, maybe that deal with the devil, like all this sort of blather and this sort of energetic, emotional stuff to maintain a sense of self, maybe we don't need that. Maybe it's better to just let that all go. But we won't notice that unless we take up this formal training of working with gentle speech, less speech. And then the last point, uh, so we have truthfulness that we talked about last week, and then slander, harshness. And the last one is refraining from idle speech. And here, idle speech and gossip, it's really about speech, and you know, we've covered a little of this already, you know, speech that doesn't have any value. And the Buddha has these lists about what's useful speech and what's not so useful. So <laughs> what he talks, he mentions like what's not useful. Talk about rulers, politicians, criminals, ministers of state, armies, dangers, battles, food, drink, clothing, dwellings, adornments, perfumes, relatives, vehicles, villages, towns, cities, provinces, women and men, heroes, streets, baths, um, relations who have died, this and that. <laughs> the origins of the world, the origins of the ocean, eternity views, annihilation views, worldly loss, worldly gain, self-indulgence, self-mortifications. It cuts out quite a bit. <laughs> and then he's got a list of what's appropriate to talk about. you got to translate these uh, in a way that might be me more meaningful. Wanting little or the joy of renunciation, the joy of simplicity. You could talk about that. You know, I stopped watching TV and it's just so great. That's a great lead-in for a conversation. Contentment is a good conversation topic. Seclusion, like, you know, I went away 
Did bring my iPod, did bring my cell phone. It was really nice. Uh, disenchantment with sense contact. Effort, you know, the, the, the joy of making effort, of kind of skillful resolution. The power of uh, living a harmonious or virtuous life. Concentration, like, yeah, I had a set the other day, or I was doing my qigong, and my mind got really unified, and a lot of joy arose. I just felt so whole and complete, you know. That's a nice thing to talk about. <laughs> Wisdom, you know, just seeing how conditional and impersonal and ephemeral and insubstantial and impermanent everything is. And the freedom of letting go of a self-centered orientation. So these are the topics for fruitful conversation. <laughs> I mean, I, you probably some of you remember you were here a couple of weeks ago when I mentioned, I think from Sylvia Borstein, where she says, uh, in terms of idle speech, uh, you know, is what I'm about to say a benefit, or is what I'm about to say better than not speaking? Is it somehow adding something? Is it an improvement on silence? Uh, can you imagine if we kind of kept up that reflection throughout the day? Is what I'm about to say an improvement on just being in silence? And what a different world this would be. You know, and now, for I, in terms of idle speech, it's not even so much like what internally, that like internal dialogue or commentary that's going on, but it's all this external stuff, the radio, the, you know, the news, what we're reading, what we're hearing from movies and other people talking. It's like it's, it really is incessant, the kind of buzz. And, and like what a, a layer of distraction that is that's very hard to pull away from. It's not so easy to have silence. And it, it, we begin to feel like uh, mistrustful. It's, the great irony is how we begin to mistrust silence. Notice, notice how difficult it is to get in your car without turning the radio or the CD player on. Notice how hard it is to spend an evening at home when you're alone without having something on or talking to people on the cell phone. You know, what's that about? And see, if we don't practice silence, we won't notice what's driving all of this, this kind of uh, vomit of language. I mean, it really is that. I mean, it's nice to use sometimes these graphic uh, descriptions to kind of really get a sense like, oh yeah. And of course, some of our language is, is just a, a, a beautiful expression of loving kindness. Even though we may be saying, uh, how did you like your meal, honey? What we're really saying is, I love you, I care about you. So I'm not saying that there aren't moments where words are really useful, like whether it's just about sharing some very important information or just a kind of a vehicle for, for something really beautiful, just like Bread is sometimes a vehicle for butter, you know. Uh, words can be a vehicle for something much deeper, more profound, like I'm, I'm here with you, you know. Uh, your suffering is my suffering. I care about your pain. But maybe that, for whatever reason, we can't say that to that person, although we might just try. 
we might need to say it in a different way, in a more super, seemingly more superficial way. But really, the meaning is, is not. I mean, I'm kind of like this with my dad. He's in this place, very difficult place, just partly because he's older and a lot of his friends are dying. To taking care of my mom with Alzheimer's, end-stage Alzheimer's. It's just really hard for him in a, in a number of ways. And, you know, we don't really have much to talk about. And, uh, but we both feel, I think, it's just like really nice to be together. And uh, so, you know, we just, it, what we actually say to each other isn't that important most of the time. But a lot of time, and we're, we're getting much better at just sort of hanging out in silence. But sometimes, you know, we just talk about things that don't need to be talked about, like tomatoes or, you know, food, for example, which is one of those things, you know, that Ancho <laughs> used to talk about. But what it's really about is saying, what we're really saying to each other is, it's really nice being together. It's really nice sharing space. It's really nice knowing that we care about each other. That's really what we're saying to each other in that. So I don't want to you know, paint this picture that language is bad or a problem. It's just to understand the power of language, how easy it is for it to be destructive and harmful and intoxicating and basically filling up space that gets in the way of insight, of a sort of a deeper connection with life and the insight that arises from that deeper connection with life. So I want to leave it here. We have about 13 minutes for people to share insights, comments from your own practice, your own life that seem relevant to questions that you might have about the talk or topic. So what comes to mind? Yes, yeah, Stan. And I hear, as I've heard before, the four words of truth, false, not or slander. Um, and avoiding words without charge isn't so hard for me. Or idle speech, gossip. What, it's always easy for me to hear that, especially though that second and fourth one is like Ten Commandments don't do. Mm -hmm. And I never know what slander means, to be honest. I mean, it's helpful to hear what you're saying tonight about with the charge. So what has made sense for me and it, is using, and I think I mentioned this before, of you know, truthful, kind, appropriate timing, beneficial, all and yeah. And then I can, that helps me to get through all those four. Yeah, yeah. But when you do that, and I didn't make those up, and I yeah, right. Steve Armstrong. Well, no, the Buddha. Yeah, well, hey, Steve Armstrong got it from a good guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, do I miss something, or I mean, it's just helpful to me. That language affects me in a way, so then I translate mm -hmm. it, but I guess I'm wondering. Well, you can put it in the positive, like speech that promotes concord, speech that's gentle. You know, for idle speech, it's like uh, uh, not being dependent on speech when it's not useful. You know, like having other, like we need other rituals to share space with each other. I mentioned this morning when the kids were here, because we have a children's program that happens in the community room when the Sunday morning practice group meets. And then at the very end, they come together. And I mentioned, like, with, when you're with kids or in any family situation, even just with you and your partner or good friends, like to build in rituals where you can do things that doesn't require language, like taking hikes, where it's really okay not to have to talk the whole time. 
or playing tennis or you know what I mean where you, you have a way to interact but you don't have to sort of have keep a conversation going like you have to you don't have to manifest your personality so when the personality is required it just manifests it's like a, a beautiful blooming it comes out of nowhere and your personality manifests full bloom and then in the next moment it's not required and it just disappears back into the void and there you are two uh, sort of vo void and void together like just the space of emptiness together you don't feel like you have to maintain a personality all the time when you're with other people it's such a wonderful thing about intimacy with another human being it's like we can really drop the sort of edifice of our personality and we can actually give each other permission to do that and it doesn't mean that in the next moment our personality wouldn't manifest but see, then, it's, then it has a kind of a lightness and a freshness because it's coming right out of the void. But if we're constantly maintaining the sense of self or personality, it gets really ragged and kind of rigid and uh, it's just a burden. Yeah, so think about them in the positive. But I don't think there's any, I mean, that other teaching is quite useful. But it's really focused on truthfulness, you know, about, it's like, you know, you don't say something that's harmful and not true. You don't say something that's true and harmful. You don't say something that's uh, not true. Uh, well, anyway, you know, it has to be true and not harmful. And then it needs to be done at the right time, right tone of voice, in a way that's actually going to be useful. So it's just kind of like saying that it's not enough that it's truthful, because I can use truth with the intention to destroy. I mean, it's often used with the intention to destroy. So truth isn't the only criteria for... That's why those other three are so important. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Thanks, Dan, for bringing that up. What else comes to mind? Well, this isn't, this isn't related to speech so much, but it just, it's related to um, this practice, and I heard about it indirectly through somebody who happens to listen to mainstream radio, mm -hmm. which I don't, and happens to listen to those, some of those sportscasters. And he was talking about Tiger Woods, and I guess it's sort of everybody knows that his mother came from Nepal, and they were talking about his ability. Japan, maybe? Is it Japan? No, he, well, this person probably oh. was Nepal, huh. but she was Nepalese. And they said part of the reason, and, and they felt that they could see it, part of the reason he has the abilities he has has to do with his meditation practice. Hmm. So I just thought it was fun to hear that it was yeah, yeah. talk radio land. Yeah, well, one of the board of directors in the past of IMS, the, one of the main centers out in Massachusetts, was, uh, I forget, he was part of the owner or staff of the Chicago Bulls. But anyway, there are a lot of examples. This is during Michael Jordan's time when they had that string of championships. Um, there are a number of examples of people, uh, high-profile athletes and artists who have really connected their success, worldly success, with their deep practice or at least the development of some practice. Yeah. What else comes to mind around right speech? I'm sure you guys, like me, have been swimming in the world of speech for a long time, taking your bumps along the way. What have you learned? Yes, Bruce. Hey, well, I, something that I'm playing with and trying to figure out how to play with it more, because I love noble silence, 
relationships that are long distance, that are by phone. And the one thing that I don't like about phone calls is it's really hard to get anything other than talk. <laughs> <laughs> so I um, tried to interject into these relationships the idea that we could just do some breathing together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've actually done some of that. And some of my favorite parts of these conversations are just breathing with the second person. <laughs> Yeah. Or walking practice works well with the phone too. You can just be walking back and forth, they can be walking back and forth. And it really allows for pauses. This is why some of the most profound uh, interactions with another human being happen in long car rides. Because it's like silence is permissible. And you're just hanging out, you're kind of trapped there. And, and then it's like conversations just burst out of the void and you have these amazing conversations and then back to the void and there's like, you know, moments, hours even of silence, you know, and then another kind of interaction kind of arises seemingly from nowhere, you know, and then, and it's just wonderful. I recommend people who go on retreats the, when you can and inspire to uh, ride with people because it can be quite nice to be in the car after a retreat or on the way to a retreat um, with another person. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Spruce. Yeah, Lynette. I, I, I love silence. Um, my report cards always said obsessive talking. I work on that a lot, but having said that, I'm wondering more about, you know, it's great to be all quiet and good and pauses, but it seems like we just don't really communicate well enough. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't really kind of connect with it. <laughs> well, you know, w- one of the things about uh, the formal sitting practice or more intensive practice is we have to really understand that more Venus stuff. I mean, because it's really at this level where we're beginning to see how when we have a sense experience, and by that I mean any moment of experience, that it triggers a lot of stuff. So we normally think in a conventional way that, oh, I'm just having an experience. And we just assume we're not bringing anything to that experience. That like what this moment is, we don't see it as a combination of two things. We just see it, well, this is just my experience I'm having. This is what I'm seeing or knowing in the moment. But actually it's a combination of the, the sense contact and all of our dispositions, all of our filters, right? The Mars stuff or the Venus stuff. That's what we bring to the moment. And then how we respond is coming out of that. But this is something we can actually get to know. If we're not so distracted, we gotta get, like, put the attention right at the heart, right at the center of the moment, noticing the impulses, the impulses and the dispositions and the inclinations and the intentions and the motivations and all of that stuff that's beginning to move or is moving in any moment of experience. We have to get a sense of that and intuitively get a sense of if it's skillful or unskillful. Is it coming from a narrow place or more expansive, more free place? Is it coming from love? Is it coming from fear? You know, from care or from hatred? That's that's what we have to see. And then it doesn't matter if we're from this culture or that culture, or if we're a male or a female. If we understand that stuff, then uh, basically we understand what's coming at us from other people too. Because on this level, we're very similar. 
you know. And the difference between you and me, in terms of if we're aware of this, is that like, well, what intentions have more momentum, what have less? So when you kind of come at me with, let's say, a really negative intention, a negative intention like maybe it's the victim disposition that gets triggered, you know, and so you're in this full-blown, I'm a victim, you're the aggressor kind of mode. But when I, so if I'm, if I'm aware at this level and you, and then this is coming at me, which I realize I know that victim, it's just not the strongest intention in my mind, but I know it because it's there. But the aggressor, you know, that's maybe the stronger disposition. So that's what tends to get acted out. But when I see the victim, I recognize it because I'm aware of all my different impulses and intentions and dispositions, including the feeling of being a victim and the feeling of being an aggressor and the feeling of wanting out of this all and the feeling of like, oh, this is so great to be able to see all this and I can actually be skillful and maybe this practice has something to it that can be developed. and. So all of those things I recognize, and then I can recognize them in other people too. Even if what I'm seeing out there isn't something that uh, outwardly manifests too often, I know it because I see it in the seed form. You know, I see it as a just an, as a more subtle, less developed habit energy. But it's there, and so I recognize it. And then we can really appreciate what. You know, this is just something this person is acting out due to causes and conditions. Just like this is what I'm acting out due to causes and conditions. And that's why this moment is like this. And it can be this sort of profound appreciation. It doesn't change the fact that I'm from Venus and you're from Mars <laughs> or something like that. But, uh, but it really brings a kind of depth of perspective and forgiveness and patience with that. You know, and it's like uh, it allows us to hold the differences in the how we tend to bump up with one another, despite not wanting to bump up against one another. I mean, one of the great tragedies is when we see two people who really do care about each other causing each other hell. I mean, this happens so much. It's, you know, and then when these breakups happen, especially when they're kids, it's like the ultimate tragedy. But you know what we have to understand this bumping up it's like there's two ways to relate to it we can see it and kind of uh, take it personally or we can see the sort of bumping up that we have in our life and understand it from kind of a dimensional perspective which we call wisdom like see it in terms of impersonal forces because once we start blaming each other breakup is inevitable but if we understand that what is pushing my buttons, this bumping up, this scrubbing and scrubbing, when we understand that it's impersonal, it's a lot more tolerable, you know, when we see that. Like even in terms of politics, which we talked about earlier, when we, you know, put other, when we see the kind of messiness of our social world or political world that we live in, when we, when we see it personally, when we take it personally, when we, then that person's being evil, that person's being stupid, that person's being greedy. You know, it's intolerable. We really want to spank, or even worse, you know, those bad guys out there, those people we think are bad. But when we see it in terms of impersonal forces, we can be very loving and forgiving. It doesn't mean we won't do something. Hopefully it doesn't mean we won't do something. It just means that we're not justifying hatred and aggression, you know, as a way of dealing with 
the messiness out there. Well, we've run out of time. If it's quick, Julian. You know, telling someone, for example, you know, if you care enough about someone to be honest, to say, hey, I feel, you know, you're being greedy or what are your motivations behind this? But I can think in my life of several examples of telling someone I think they're beautiful. And just because I think they're a beautiful person. But look at how just that comment can make someone's head spin. Do they want me? Mm-hmm. Is there an ulterior motive? <laughs> yeah. You know, things like that. You know, it's the same with telling someone you love them. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in a society where we have to be so careful about those things, and it just seems like there's almost a lack of honesty and a sadness in it. But talking about that, like you just did, that's really con- conducive of intimacy, like just sort of, I mean, this is like in terms of those topics to talk about, talking about the Dhamma, like talking about the way it is, like you just did, it really, you see how useful that is, like it really pulls us together, like we understand, oh, this is the predicament we're in. This is like a, an insight into dukkha, like how difficult it is for human beings, given our conditioning, to really connect despite our good intentions, like you were talking about, you know, it's not so easy because it's not enough to sort of understand our good intentions. It's like our good intentions also have to include what we're seeing, like intuitively getting where the person's at, you know. And then so that our intention to want to support the other person with kind words meets where, how we're kind of seeing where they're at so that then what we speak takes in some kind of intuitive sense of where they're at, what might actually be able to be heard by that other person. You know, and if we don't have any insight or intuition, then we have to just remain silent, basically, because we don't know what will be useful, even though we care. But that itself is a beautiful thing, and we have to be satisfied just with uh, having a wholesome intention to care, even if there's no outward way to express that. So let's just take a moment and let go of the words. Thanks so much for all the good comments. Appreciating the silence. And remembering our deep aspiration, each of us finding our own way toward wisdom and compassion This is the deepest way to take care of ourselves and all beings. So thanks again, everyone, for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.